Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. What links Lorraine Kelly, Charlie XCX, Owen Quigg, and Santana? I'm sure many things do, but one is that they've all been the subject of Peter Robinson's writing at some point. Welcome to Reads Like a Four, the podcast about critics and criticism. I'm Adam Brooks, and this is the second part of our interview with Peter Robinson, uh, who, as you should know from part one, has written for uh, most major music magazines in the UK, and is also the purveyor of pop justice, uh, a real man of the words, if you like. Uh, So I really hate it when people drag their intros out, especially when you're listening to the second part of a two-part podcast. So let's not waste any more time and we'll get back to talking to Peter Robinson. Um, so obviously you were writing Peter Robinson versus uh, for Enemy for a very long time. I wondered what the most unexpected reaction uh, that you'd had to a question or interview was, either at the time or after it was published. Uh, oh dear. Well, I don't feel very proud of this. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it started off, Connor, who was the editor at the time, was re- redoing the magazines. Obviously all magazines kind of have a sort of re- a redo, that's a technical publishing term there. Mm-hmm every few years just to kind of refresh everything and he was like do you want to do this column and he's like I'm thinking of calling it um, something like Peter Robinson the Inquisitor or something and then it eventually ended up being Peter Robinson versus so the very the title of the column was quite it suggested confrontation I guess mm-hmm. and I suppose the, the idea of it was and obviously Pop World was big on TV at that point where everyone would sort of go in and just have rude and uh, bizarre questions after them but I think Connor also sort of grew up reading sort of smash hits so he sort of knew that you could get more out of somebody by asking a stupid question than you could by asking them about their new music yeah um, so so it's Peter Robinson versus and it was kind of sort of cheeky and um, irreverent and sometimes rude and I don't think you get away with it now because people would just be like I don't I don't need to sort of risk looking like a fool in exchange for a page in a Mm. print publication now but at the time it's I still got really good people to do it Carlos Santana did an interview with me I can't remember what I'd asked him but at the end of the phone interview um, I don't care about Carlos Santana but at the end of the phone interview um, we said goodbye there was a click on the line he thought I'd hung up but actually it wasn't me hanging up it was his publicist coming back into the phone call I remember reading about and this and he um I don't know why I didn't hang up, but he was just said to his publicist, can you just make sure I don't have to do any more interviews like that again? <laughs> and 
now I can kind of think fair play. It was a, I was a dick in the interview. He's a legend. Um, for I would uh, I would ask exactly the same thing, rather than just hang up and put it down to a learning experience. I was just like, you what? <laughs> he was slightly surprised that I was still on the line. We had a miniature argument, and then I published it in the column. I, I mean. People, I mean, people do bring it up every now and again to me. I don't feel particularly proud of it, but at the same time, it's quite funny. But it's, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone came out of that covered in glory, to be honest. <laughs> now that you mentioned it, I remember reading it. I think that was that was one thing I loved about about the versus uh, interviews was just the sheer breadth of guest uh, or interviewee. I suppose. Well, it was great because obviously the, a lot of publications get offered, and you'll you'll find sort of Q and A sort of sections and little columns in a lot of magazines and a lot of websites because people get pitched artists or actors or whoever who aren't really appropriate to the magazine or the website all the time because PR is just I don't know I mean it's free to send an email isn't it so I guess they just mm. ask everyone um, but they're sometimes quite big so you'd end up with a pop act who sort of wanted to be or Carlos or Santana's a great example I mean there's no way at that point in its history that Enemy would have done a piece about Carlos Santana, yeah. even though he is a legend and is you know it was a long and fascinating career, um, but equally you don't want to turn down Carlos Santana because he's kind of interested. So, so that's how he ended up in that sort of like you wouldn't get a feature and he wouldn't probably get a live review or anything like that. But he certainly wouldn't get on the cover. But it would sort of make sense for that that weird page where it was more about sort of the format of it, I guess, mm. than the who the talent actually was it's, it's where they fit it's where those people fit I suppose yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know a lot of the websites have that kind of thing now mm. the, the, the Q&A page or the kind of 10 questions we always ask page that kind yeah. of thing that is where you sort of will often find people who wouldn't necessarily be in the magazine but they've been sort of squashed into the format the yeah. magazine has. I remember there was, well, there was a similar thing uh, elsewhere in Enemy when they had like the records that changed my life and then it started off being very worthy, quote-unquote, you know, credible artists and then by the end it seemed like it was just any anyone that people recognised a little bit. Yeah, um, but then sometimes, like people people you recognise, I mean... Sometimes it's more interesting because you, you, you don't know what those people will pick. When it's, if it's a daytime TV presenter, I'm curious. You know, it's like when it's like when they have you know not I don't think they ever have, but when they have people like um, I don't know, like a, like a Jack Whitehall or a Frankie Boyle on Desert Island Discs. Yeah, I I've got less of a steer on what they're going to choose, and therefore I'm more interested to hear it than when it's like Paul Weller, for example. Yeah, I th I'm pretty sure unless it was for something else. I'm pretty sure it's for NME. I'm pretty sure, right? I did Lorraine Kelly for my Versus page in NME. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's, she's I read a, that too. You did. She's amazing. You did. And, but like, she was into the. I think maybe she said her first gig was a human league, and like, she was into punk and stuff. And, and this is amazing. This is like Lorraine Kelly, and you wouldn't. I mean, maybe unless you've done some research, but you wouldn't necessarily know that like she used to be into punk and Susie and the Banshees and, mm. or Human League and things like that. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's not a newsflash that Lorraine Kelly is amazing, is it? But <laughs> but it kind of. She kind of got absorbed into Enemy's world at that point. Oh, that's nice. A beautiful converging. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about authenticity in pop. Um, how important do you think that that is and what does it look like? Is it as simple as 
telling the truth in interviews? Is it about not contradicting yourself? I mean, I guess one example that I, that I made me think about contradicting yourself is is the uh, the pieces you did with Lady Gaga a few years ago for Time Out and Enemy and so on, mm. where it seemed like one of the things that happened in the article was that she was saying things that seemed somewhat contradictory that you basically politely and and less politely pulled her up on. Um, so is is that an is that an issue in I mean you have to talk in specific, with with specific reference to, to that but authenticity in pop is it, 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 is that something that's important do you think and, and what is it I think I think it is, I think it is important now and I used uh, when I first started pop justice for instance it was all very much about I don't care if an artist is singing live when I see them as long as there are explosions and they're flying around on a wire by the end of it mm-hmm. um, it was all about I don't, I don't care if an artist is, is writing their own songs or has anything to do with them as long as the songs are amazing and actually that point still stands I mean if you, if you have an emotional reaction to a song you'd be a dick if you refuse to let yourself enjoy it before you checked Wikipedia for the writing credits mm-hmm. I mean that's ludicrous but in order to and I think Lady Gaga has significantly altered this um, w- when she came along and she was writing her own stuff and could am- articulate amazingly why her stuff was how it was and what she was trying to do with it and obviously she could perform them all live and on a piano she had a great voice um, I think that um, I think that changed a lot of expectations of what fans could want from pop so it kind of sort of took it back to maybe the early 80s when the biggest pop bands like Duran Duran or uh, Pet Shop Boys or whoever mm-hmm. um, had to, you know they wrote their own sort of, they were like bands yeah we're um, in control of the whole process yeah more or less um, so I mean you've still got you you know you've still got your sort of Beyonce's or although she does have writing credits on paper mm-hmm. so you know, got Beyonce, or, you know Justin Bieber's a good example I no one's particularly mm-hmm. bothered that Julia Michaels and Justin Tranter wrote sorry mm-hmm. he just sing, he performs it really well and it makes sense of him it was the right song for the right time yeah but uh, in a lot of other areas of, of pop music I think people have a, a, a certain expectation about well how talented is somebody and that's why people like Charlie XCX are really exciting because she's you know she's a writer and a kind of she's responsible for, for her own vision in terms of her career um, and you know doing her mixtapes and all the imagery and stuff for it um so that's what makes her quite exciting. Equally, her her single "Boys," which was great, she didn't actually write that one, and people still really liked it. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's nice to know that people have ideas. Yeah, especially if you if you want to engage with, um, I suppose it's really important actually. Now the uh, now the sort of record sales or CD sales or download sales aren't how people make money, because they 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 make money through. Their endorsements and they'll make money through ticket sales and mm-hmm. merch and stuff like that. And I, I guess you, I guess you only really get people to go and see you live, or you get people to buy your merch or persuade brands to spend money on you if people kind of have some sort of connection with you. And yeah. I think if people think that what you're saying and what you're doing is coming from you, then they get more of a, a rounded idea about who you are as an artist. Yeah, they they perceive that you stand for something. Yeah, and and something consistent, even if that consistent thing is change. It's yeah. still it's still something that people can believe in, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> have I answered my own question? Yes, I have. <laughs> um, a lot of your writing that I've enjoyed has been uh, critiquing the process around pop music's release, uh, the producers, the narrative, the remixes, and so on. How much of your interest in pop is around the process rather than the end product? I, th- I think the process is really interesting and fascinating, and um, it kind of, it's, it's sort of, the, 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 long, the more I've got to know artists or the more I've got to know managers or people who work at record labels I was that was that phrase about um, uh, success has many fathers but failure is an orphan yep. is that literally the phrase I don't know that where is it's from. literally the phrase the artist has a bad album comes out so the artist is crucified for having lost the plot or whatever but I would say in reality much as you know the phrases that uh Failure is an orphan. That failure, loads of people are responsible for that. The A&R, management, marketing team. So many decisions are made that usually aren't the artist, you know, aren't for, especially in pop mm. music, aren't from the artist. And there are so many opportunities to stop something terrible. Yes. And I kind of, I sometimes, I sometimes think, I can't, criticise I don't think the artist wants this to have happened anyway and we all know because we've all read interviews haven't we with people going oh yeah my old label were awful they made me do this and I didn't like it or people who leave their managers and suddenly have a new lease of life or mm. you know whatever it is like we all know that artists face a huge number of hurdles and unless they're a very rare and very lucky artist they have to spend their entire time sort of convincing other people to agree with their vision Sometimes that's a good safety net. Like mm-hmm. Sometimes artists just don't have a fucking clue what they're doing. So it's good that there are managers there going, you know, I don't think the elephant motif is a good idea for this album. Why don't we just have a nice photo in front of a brick wall or something? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, you know, I just, I sort of sometimes give people the benefit, benefit of the doubt. I mean, usually... I mean, people are just doing their best, aren't they? Yeah. I know this shouldn't form this shouldn't form the basis of um, of whether you give something a good review or not. But I think now people shouldn't be rewarded for doing their best mm-hmm. because sometimes your best isn't good enough or whatever. Um, people shouldn't be rewarded for doing their best. But if you think people haven't been doing their best, if you think some you know somebody that producer has just phoned it in, or if you think the artist just turned up did one vocal take and cleared off whatever if you think they haven't people haven't been doing their best I guess that's when you're sort of justified in giving something a bad review isn't it so you wouldn't give something a good review because everyone's worked really hard on it because you know we're yeah. not a primary school there's but, no A's for effort yeah, yeah. but if, if people aren't trying on it you just think come on come on lads but, it, but there is a pop star fronting it and there are, I, uh, like a few years ago do you remember um, Owen Quigg from yes uh, from The X Factor this is when X Factor was still a thing, so you wouldn't have to necessarily win it to get a record deal. And mm-hmm. even if you didn't win it, you would still do, you know, still get an album out. So I did a review, um, just of his album, which was. It was. I said it was. I said it was the worst <laughs> worst album ever made, <laughs> and then went on to explain precisely why. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, they, the the A and R process on it of choosing the songs for him. Like the artwork was terrible. You know, the, you can tell. A lot, I know you shouldn't judge a book by the cover, but you can tell when no one cares about an album. Or oh, there's definitely tropes. Because yeah. the, I mean, the, the artwork was terrible. He was. It was the sixteen-year-old boy who was 
covering uh, Ben, which is about someone who obviously is a boy who's so lonely, he makes friends with a rat. Mm-hmm. Uh, a song called 28,000 Friends, which is how you have a following on social media, but you don't know anybody. Um, there's another song about sort of being lonely and having no friends. And it's like this 16-year-old boy who just sort of had to move away from all his friends and given up his education to be a pop star and stuff, despite the fact that he was going to get booted out the back door. And it's just, I think I said something about the fact that it made you want to call social services or something mm. like that. And I said it would be a low for popular culture if it counted as cultural or was likely to be popular. It was just, <laughs> it, was, it was a real kicking. And that's an example. Like, he, was a fronting, he was fronting this whole thing. I think his, his old, old music teacher ended up phoning a... I think I, uh, yeah, I heard that his old music teacher phoned some Irish radio station and started slagging me off on, oh. on air or something. I, I think, but he made some reference about the Irish MP, Peter Robinson, as well. So I don't know if he was a bit confused. I have got a soft spot sometimes for when there's, uh, when there's a sort of local media kickback. <laughs> I remember, I remember the, uh, the, the, the Tinmouth newspaper when uh, I think Muse had just said there was nothing to do in Tinmouth apart from start bands and take drugs. Uh, so there was a photo the following day in the Tinmouth, in the Herald Express, I think, which is near near to my hometown, of uh, of the mayor holding their CD precariously above a bin, which Amazing. is my absolute <laughs> favourite. Yeah. But the, the thing with the Owen Quigg thing is like, it, it was all, you know, and it got, uh, I think it was sort of before social media properly, but it got a lot of, I got lots of emails about it. It was obviously like a thing that people were, like any, like we were saying at the start of the conversation, if some, you give something a real kicking, people get really excited and go, "Oh, look at this! Isn't it exciting?" Um, and it's like, you know, Owen Quigg's made a bad album. Owen Quigg hadn't made a bad album. He had kept up his side of the deal. He had, with the talents that he had for vocals, gone in and sung the songs he was told to sing. He was, but he, he who had failed on that is the record label and the A and R marketing. Like every, everybody else nobody else cared about that nobody else cared about this 16 year old boy and that's what made me really angry about it but obviously looking back at it now all, all people sort of see is you know Owen Quigg's album is the worst of all time mm. which is unfair but I guess it would make for a sort of complicated review to always go take the artist out of the equation here These are, maybe I should just do that maybe I should just do a thing where I name and shame everybody in the album credits <laughs> maybe I mean, you know, they put their names out there for a reason. So, um, so if, I mean, all these years later, Owen Quigg, if, you, if you're listening to this podcast, I, I think you know it was a bad album, but I know it wasn't your fault. And I'm sorry if it made you sad. That seems fair. That seems fair. I'm glad we've been able to right some wrongs today. Um, uh, in fact, that, oh, this might actually answer my next question. I was going to say, to whom in the world of popular culture do you most owe an apology for something you've written and why? I mean, uh, if it was Owen Quigg, then we can move swiftly on, but there might be someone else that that, that deserves one. I don't know. Did I... No. I mean, I guess Ed Sheeran, I guess. I, um... Oh, God, I still feel bad about this. So I'd, I'd agreed to go on Radio 5 or whatever to uh, do a roundtable singer review thing, Ed Sheeran's album was out that week. Now, it's his first album. He was kind of getting big, but it wasn't massive. He was in the studio with a guitar to perform a song live. I knew I didn't like Ed Sheeran. I also knew I was in the middle of writing an article on what I decided would be called The New Boring, which was saying that people trying to make downbeat music um, in the vein of Adele um, had created this kind of this uh, wave of boredom that would uh, engulf pop. Um, and I knew that he was going to be a main point in it. I didn't want to contradict myself or be a hypocrite. So then afterwards, when the, when the host and Ed Sheeran was sitting as close to me as you are now mm-hmm. with his guitar, having just done a song, everyone was going, that was amazing, well done. And the host said to me, what do you think of that? I was like, I don't really like it. 
I don't really like Ed Sheeran. Um, and he, and oh, I mean, why? But I, well, I wouldn't want to lie. I wouldn't want to lie to him. And also, anybody who had read my stuff would know that I wasn't a fan. I couldn't think of a way of getting out of it. So, um, yeah. So obviously, I felt awful because what a horrible thing to say to somebody on the special day of his album mm-hmm. release. But then afterwards, he came up and found me. And. Uh, in the green room and said thank you for being honest I appreciate that which then made me feel even worse because yeah. he's just like such a great guy and then so then the new, bo- new boring article came out and I referred to the album as a 12 bore shit gun or 13 if you include the bonus track and um, just sort of tore it apart although I was looking at it earlier and it's not as bad as I remember it but Ed Sheeran also remembers it and has brought it up in a couple of interviews and I think we're alright now because he's tweeted me a couple of times and it's been okay mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I think it's okay. He seems, I mean, we're never going to be he, friends. I don't, I don't, I mean, he seems, he seems like a really nice guy. So I'd be happy to live next door to him. Yeah. But I don't think we should You wouldn't fear for your letterbox. Um, but obviously, you know, the prospect of living next door to him now, he's a multimillionaire is unlikely. So mm. in terms of who had the last laugh, it's Ed Sheeran. You'd be fine living next door to him because it would mean the class of house you were in would be so, <laughs> so much better. I'd probably be in his, in the grounds. I'd probably be the gardener. <laughs> Yeah, he seems like someone who is who is entirely at peace with bad reviews and happy to engage with the people that wrote them on a pleasant footing. I think, I th- yeah, he's, he's like this a lot on Twitter, actually. He's very good at a, a sort of kill me kindness thing. And mm. obviously being the biggest pop star in the world sort of helps you feel confident enough to do that, I yeah. guess. This is reminding me of a story uh, that might make you feel better about, about well, not slating him, but, but saying that on the radio. Uh, when I first started working in the music industry. I was working at Atlantic Records for a time uh, and it was during the period that Jim Class Heroes were doing their Super Tramp Ch- Cupid's Chokehold single. Great days. And they had a live lounge with Joe Wiley and I remember it distinctly because I personally don't feel that Joe Wiley is someone who is overflowing with a range of opinions uh, but they played the live lounge. They did a cover. I can't remember the cover and as they finished she went on air that wasn't very good, was it? <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying if even Joe Wiley has been moved to say something? I mean, I th- you know, I think, wow. I think you know, any uh, any variation on talking about goosebumps is is welcome from Joe Wiley in my eyes. Yeah. But but yeah, everybody everybody does it. Some t- every a bit of honesty always slips through, uh, and it made me chuckle. Although not at the time because I was working on that record. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, why do artists let... I mean, this is a question I should probably be able to answer myself. Why do artists let labels hold back the best song on an album as the second single? I've, I've had got a long-running theory that the first song released from a record is never the best song. The second song almost always is. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's one way of doing it. And it often works because there's going to be so much excitement if you know, it's a big artist or if an artist coming back. So much excitement about them coming back that the hysteria will uh, allow people to overlook the fact that the song isn't quite as good. Mm-hmm. Some songs only make sense as the first single back as well. Yeah. Um, and make very good sense as the first single back, even though they're not the best song. And then obviously if you, if you then follow that up with a song that's even better, then that increases the excitement. And I guess it makes people think, hang on, I liked the first one, I really like the next one, this trajectory is incredible. I must buy the album because you know, mm-hmm. they didn't shoot their load on the first single. I, and I guess this is probably something that is, is it's a bit of an old thing now in that most people will have four tracks out before the record. So I'm still thinking of a one single, two single album mm. strategy like it was when I used to do it. Um, I wonder if, well, if it's a bit of a like, it's a bit of a knock on a doorbell. The first track is a knock on the door. It, the people who are excited will hear that knock. A lot of people won't notice. But then by the time the doorbell rings, enough people heard the knock that it's fine. Yes, you sort of one second single to kick the door down, really, don't you? Yeah. Um, I mean, like t- tonight. Um, obviously, this podcast will appear sometime that isn't tonight. But mm. tonight on Radio One, uh, years and years, so their new comeback single is has probably just been played. In fact, um, it's not the best song of what's on their album, mm-hmm. but to them, it's I guess makes sense to reintroduce people and to uh, to have a sort of buzz release thing. It's a bit, but you know, so you know, sometimes it, like you say, it is the second single that's a good one. Like the, I always think of like Spice Girls with "Wannabe" and "Say You'll Be There." I mean, mm-hmm. "Say You'll Be There" is a better song, but "Wannabe" is a statement of intent. Yeah, I mean, you, "Wannabe" could only be a debut single. Yeah, um, but then obviously you "Say You'll Be There," people were like, "Oh, actually, they're not enough watching out because this is a proper song and it's actually really good." Then they had a ballad. You know, they could do three different things. Mm. There you go, uh, and maybe still could. Um, what single thing could labels do to improve professional criticism? This could be as simple as how music is serviced. This well, I be... mean, I, I don't want to appear controversial, but letting people hear music before it's released is helpful if they want anything more than a snap judgment. Mm-hmm. What's the uh, what's the ratio? What's the ratio now of releases? Oh, it's, you'll get in advance? it's a total shit show. So um, you know this, but I don't think it's been very well communicated outside the music industry but a couple of years ago they changed the releases didn't they to a global release day so oh, yeah. New Music Friday they call it um, and obviously I grew up with New Music coming out on a Monday um, charts on a Sunday but they changed it and it made sense that they would change it in the era of streaming and downloading and they it made sense and it, it, a hangover from the past but albums would come out in different it's just, even like two or three years after New Music Friday was invented it seems ridiculous this was ever the case in the digital era 
that an album would come out in different months in you know in America and the UK or something, mm. and they would sort of hold it back so they had their own marketing things. And, and they it, still do it with films, and I still they don't, do. It yeah. still seems ridiculous. And uh, um, they, all the labels were just like, "This is this is ludicrous. We're going to have this. Every all new music is going to come out on a Friday internationally, um, and uh, that is good." And a few people try and break away from that. So sometimes, and like churches are around at the moment, and they keep debuting their new music on a Wednesday, which is a good way of doing it because there's so much new music on New Music Friday yeah. that if you do release something on a different day, it's your best chance of standing out. And I think there's something about how it takes a few days for a song to sort of percolate through the streaming, to like to build up streams to the point where you get into algorithms and stuff. Yeah. And that if you have a, if you have a week and a half that ends up with a higher chart position. I don't fucking know. Um, so, but, so much stuff appears on a, on a Friday. Um, when I, I do a New Music Friday playlist for Pop Justice, um, and what I do to make that is I create a new playlist first thing on a Friday morning, and I drag all of Global Spotify's New Music Friday into it, or the UK New Music Friday playlist, because they have different regional playlists. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do I do? Norway, Sweden, Australia. I think those are the ones I do. Drag them all in. And I usually end up with about 200 songs. And then I just bang through them. And I get done in half an hour. Just delete the ones that sound rubbish after a few seconds. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I've made a mistake yet. I would appreciate that this is not the most um, responsible way of assembling <laughs> a new music playlist. But Christ, 200 songs. 200 songs that someone somewhere in the world has... Sometimes it's 150, sometimes it's 200, but all these songs that someone somewhere in the world in a position of editorial control at Spotify is deemed worth listening to. No one, I mean, you don't really have time to get to know 10 new songs properly Mm. in a week, let alone that many. So I just bang through them and, you know, first sign of a tropical house drop, delete, (laughs) metal, delete, Jack White, delete. Um, Because, you know, it would take 10 hours to listen to that many songs. Yeah. I'm a busy man. I'm not that busy. I'm a busy man. so and that and then I'll reorder them best at the top, down to sort of interesting but not actually that good. Then a comedy bad one at the bottom, and that is uh, I mean that's and I'll do some commentary on it when I embed it on on Pop Justice website. Mm-hmm. But that sort of best to worst is probably the more than the equivalent of Pop Justice doing single reviews. Really. I mean, it sounds to me like a valuable public service in line with the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> You're saving a lot of people a lot of time. It's Inform, not just about you. Educate. Entertain. Deliver some bangers. There you go. Yeah, the last song entertains, if nothing else. <laughs> um, speaking of, of getting music before it's out, what record that you've heard pre-release had the most elaborate anti-leaking measures attached to it? I fondly remember having to uh, constantly get more and more watermarks made at great expense. I was luckily out of the music industry before we got to play MPE or whatever it is now. Christ. Um yeah, like every record label or music group has seems to have their own proprietary music delivery service. These do things like not work in the first place. They will lock a stream to the browser you've opened it on. So if you open it on your phone, you can't listen to it on your computer mm-hmm. or vice versa. Obviously, these are streams, so you can't sort of put them into any sort of list. You can't put them into iTunes, so you can listen to them properly on your phone and get to know them. Yep. They will lock after three listens. Um, they will just disappear for no reason at all. It's just, it, it's not the ideal way to get to know music. And, uh, you know, that, that's just, uh, I'm trying to think of a really elaborate, I mean, there was one playback I went to where you had to sign an NDA 
that you wouldn't say anything about anything or you'd be fined like 20 grand or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't messing around with that. Obviously, when you, if you go to a playback, then you have to sort of hand over your phones. And yeah. I feel like it got to a point a few years ago where it was like the, the anti-leaking measures were almost performative. Like, they didn't really care that much, but by making you, you know take it from a briefcase that's attached to someone with handcuffs and like by signing NDAs it just made it seem like more of an event like it was almost marketing rather than yeah. actually leak protection yeah I mean there, there, there is a huge you know there is a, a huge amount of money I guess to be lost if a song so at the point where I, it still happens a bit but at the point when you have someone from a record label flying around the world simply to be in possession of the only iPod that has the finished album on it so that they can go to a recording studio where there are journalists there, plug it in and play it, and then when they've heard it, take it and go back to the airport. I mean, that's... Maybe... I don't think that's performative. I think that's just people being ultra-paranoid and mm. and uh, wanting to protect, I guess, an investment. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the economics are of a, if, if an album leaks a week before it comes out. I don't know what the economic impact of that is in the streaming era. In the download yeah. era, there would be a sort of significant impact, but I think in the streaming era, I think you know because people wouldn't be buying it in the first place. Yeah, I think uh, I think it probably wouldn't be as big a thing. But obviously, if people have got a campaign set up to sort of impact everything pointing towards a certain date, you don't want an album leaking beforehand. No, no. Um, Imagine there was a broadsheet journalist who'd been given column inches every week to write a review of everything you'd written. Uh, what what effect do you think that would have on what you wrote? Would it would it matter to you? I mean, that's kind of Twitter, really. I suppose, yeah. It's um, I mean, it depends who the broadsheet journalist was. If it, <laughs> uh, I think, uh, in the same way that I would imagine a indie band not being particularly bothered about what I had to think about them. If Neil McCormick reviewed me and said I wasn't very good, I'd be like, great. I've done something right. Mm -hmm. If um, Alexis Petridis did the same, I'd be very upset. Mm -hmm. So the question is, reading between the lines, would, do I expect when I review something, an artist to actually pay any attention to it, change Uh, the way they approach what they're doing moving forward, think oh actually maybe what I've done isn't very good do I you know do, and also do I why do I decide that I'm in a position to critique other people's work when I wouldn't necessarily like it if people did the same to me I don't know the answers to that I think um, I, I know artists that I do know mm-hmm. um, socially most artists say they don't read their press because um, and I would advise artists not to necessarily read their press but they all do and they don't forget. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, I mean, they, they, they will sort of forget the good reviews because maybe they'll blur into one and they'll just have a general good feeling about them, but they never forget bad ones. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't forget people who've slagged me off either. Yeah, yeah. So I look it's forward human. to the feedback on this podcast. It's human nature. Um, yeah. Uh, okay, so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm more... Do I sound like, like Morrissey? No. <laughs> Not nearly as section edited to avoid legal action. We also want you to know that Peter did not know, did not agree, didn't say yes about the bit we've removed with the podcast. For legal reasons, I'm not nodding, laughing, or 
and he he's turned his back for 30 seconds until I'm onto something completely separate. Um, we're more or less at the end of, of, of everything I had to ask you, but what I do do with everyone who does an episode is a, a short test at the end. Uh, so what this is, this is five uh, phrases or, yeah. or, or, or excerpts some of them are your writing. Some of them are someone else's. <laughs> okay. Um, so, these, so these are... They could be somebody else's it could writing. Be, they could be someone else's writing. They could be yours. It's, right. it's sort of about whether you can recognise your own voice. Right, um, okay. So the first one. As the chorus swells and undulates repeatedly over gauzy synths and some excellent use of marimbas, Spears' focus seems to be less on the sadness of solitude and more about the pleasure she takes in her own voice. I don't think I've ever called anything gauzy. Okay, that is not you, you're right. That's Alex McPherson on Britney's Gloria. Um, two. Fix is the album artwork not of a pla- multi-platinum global artist, but of a singer who ends his weeknights packing up his own equipment and selling handmade CDRs after gigs. The dejected tone suggesting a man not selling compact discs out the back of his car as much as actually living in it. Uh, that was me, wasn't it? That was you. Uh, 2014 in The Guardian. Uh, presumably Robin Thicke, I think it was. Um, yes. Three. There's a seemingly unselfconscious desire from all parties to innovate within the realms of the modern pop song. They succeed at every turn, and the inevitable roll call of guests keep it moving. Keep it moving is quite a bad way of ending that. It feels like the writer has started off quite well, and then has either run out of word count, or doesn't know how to finish a sentence, and that's the sort of thing that I do, so I'm going to say that was me. That was you. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, uh, enemy review of Demon Days, Gorillaz. Um, right, okay. Yeah. Uh, four. David didn't disappear so much as people moved on as... Oh, sorry. David didn't disappear so much as people moved on as they do. We stopped paying attention. And there he was, still making music, still writing songs, still doing very much what he was doing when he was popular, except with far fewer people watching. Well, there's a reputation of still there, which is the sort of thing I... I, do you, I don't remember saying that, so I don't, I'm going to say no to that. That isn't you. That was Pop Matters on Craig David. Okay. Yeah. This is the radio equivalent of a chocolate bar, whose pieces must surely be too chunky for the delicate hands and tiny mouth of a lady, or possibly a ridged beef-flavoured crisp that would be impossible for a woman to consume, given that she'd be holding a dainty parasol in one hand while pushing a pram with the other. That was me talking about the XFM rebrand, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Yes. And can I just say that I don't think those things, that was me criticising XFM and the way that they said that they were a station for men. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was not... I do not... Well, I hope I do not think that's about women. I hoped a that was implied, and b that, <laughs> b that our listenership is wise enough to know the difference. Well, because okay, we we can't we can't choose. Our I, I wouldn't take anything for granted these days. Did you get five out of five? I might have done. I'll have to listen back. I mean, if four out of five or five out of five, if that was a review, I would put it on the tube poster. There you go. So yeah. if everything above a four, you put on a tube poster. So I'd be happy with four. But there you are. Is even better. The tube poster of your life is one step closer to completion. Uh, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank Please you. Next week, we'll be diverting into the world of film as I talk to filmmaker and critic Charlie Line about his work for Sight and Sound and The Guardian, uh, and also why he made a 607-minute film of paint drying on a brick wall. Uh, There's a clue. It has to do with the BBFC. Uh, Anyway, more of that next week. So please do join us then. And thanks for listening to Reads Like a Four. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.